Looking for a new show to dive into? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like the full season of FX's epic limited series Shogun, FX's new international spy thriller The Veil, starring Emmy and Golden Globe winner Elizabeth Moss. And don't miss the all-new crime series Under the Bridge, inspired by shocking true events and starring Riley Keough and Lily Gladstone. It's all new, and it's streaming now on Hulu. On this episode of Plant Killers, we'll explore one nation's most notorious fruit and vegetable killer, Bad Dirt. What makes Bad Dirt so bad? The answer? The ingredients. But fear not, true crime enthusiasts. This story has a happy ending. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil. It's made with quality organic ingredients from upcycled green waste like compost and aged bark. Unlike the other guys who can't say the same. Looks like Bad Dirt's murdering days are over, thanks to miracle Grow. Join us next time on Plant Killers. Welcome to True Crime Garage. Wherever you are, whatever you are doing, thanks for listening. I'm your host, Nick, and with me, as always, is a man that says music is the food of love. He is the captain. Well, you can just call me Sexual Chocolate. It's good to be seen, and it's good to see you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for telling a friend. This week, we are sipping on Double Cross by Crux Fermentation Project, garage grade four out of five bottle caps. This is a Belgian strong dark ale, big bodied with intense flavors of dark candy sugar, preserved fruit, and holiday spices. And this week's beer, Double Cross, was brought to us by Marina in the UK, who says we should run for president. Well, maybe your mom should run for president. A big shout out to Tammy from Portland, Oregon. And a shout out to Grizz, who says he lives in the state of love and trust out in BFE, Illinois. And a big long distance, we like your jib, to Christian in Hong Kong. And we have another Tammy captain who is listening from beautiful south of North Carolina. And last but not least, we have Sylvia, who says True Crime Garage gets five out of five bottle caps. Yes. So thank you to everybody for helping out with this week's show. Go to truecrimegarage.com. Check out the blog. Check out the store. Check it out. Yeah, go to iTunes and leave us a five-star review. It helps us in the the rankings and all that crap. So also, you can check us out on Stitcher. If you're looking for old episodes, go to Stitcher. They're all free exclusively on the Stitcher app. And that's enough of the business. All right, everybody, gather around. Grab a chair. Grab a beer. Let's talk some true crime.
in February of 1980, all hell, and I do mean hell, broke loose. At 1 a.m. on February 2nd, inmates at a maximum security prison just south of Santa Fe jumped three prison guards during a routine dorm count. By 2.05 a.m., the inmates had complete control of the prison. Two prison gangs, the Chicanos and the Aryan Brotherhood, they had their own agendas. After the takeover, the call was to immediately seek revenge against the snitches housed in cell block four. As dawn broke, a group of inmates later nicknamed the Execution Squad broke into cell block four. The rioters could not open the cell doors. However, they managed to find blowtorches that were used to renovate the overcrowded prison in block five. Unfortunately, they were able to use the blowtorches to open each cell in block four, one at a time. When opened, the victims were pulled from their cells to be tortured, dismembered, hanged, or burned alive. Inmates killed inmates with piping, work tools, and homemade shanks. Some of the inmates in this time of chaos and crisis showed they were of good character. Some of the correction officers held captive were protected by inmates. At inmates' instruction, two officers removed their uniforms and put on prison clothes to disguise themselves and avoid being attacked. These two officers were later escorted out of the prison, protected by inmates. However, other inmates showed their true colors given the opportunity and reminded us all why they were locked up in the first place, as two very unfortunate officers were so brutally beaten and raped that they had to be carried out of the prison on stretchers. Seven officers were severely injured. The riot only lasted about 36 hours, but in the end, the official death toll was 33 people, all of them inmates. Twelve of the victims had been housed in the protective custody unit. Most of the 33 were brutally murdered. Some died from a drug overdose. More than 200 inmates were treated for injuries. Later, there would be several books about this prison riot and its causes and aftermath. And to give you a better idea of the total carnage, one book is titled The Hate Factory and the other The Devil's Butcher Shop. The 1980 New Mexico State Penitentiary Riot was the most violent prison riot in American history. Then, state official Michael Frankie was brought in to completely revamp the troubled and broken New Mexico prison system. Frankie investigated and exposed the corruption that was leading to severe problems and was officially recognized for his achievements by political leaders such as former U.S. President Jimmy Carter. He served as a judge for three years and in 1983 became the director of the New Mexico Department of Corrections. In May of 1987, Oregon Governor Neil Goldschmidt hired Michael Frankie to fill the corresponding position in Oregon. Frankie was hired to address problems in the Oregon State's Department of Corrections. After coming to Oregon, Frankie learned many unfavorable things about what was happening behind prison walls. The corruption was rampant. 
and included murder, prostitution, drugs, and even stealing cattle. As it turns out, prison guards in the 80s were taking inmate crews out and stealing cattle from local farms and ranches, and then making money by supplying steaks to local restaurants. It was exposed during the 1980s that officials at the Oregon Department of Corrections were enlisting the help of convicted murderers inside the prison and rewarding them by providing them weekend passes. At least one of these weekend passes for a convicted murderer led to another murder. Simply put, Michael Frankie was hired to clean up a giant mess. Frankie told his family he was going to blow the lid off of corruption in the Oregon prison system and implicate several top government officials. However, that did not happen because he was murdered before he could do so. Michael Frankie was a good man, an ethical man, that stood up for what was right and fought corruption and the corrupted. This is his story. Michael Frankie was a native of Kansas City, Missouri. He was born October 2nd, 1946. And after graduating high school, he attended New Mexico's Highland University on a football scholarship. He would graduate with a Bachelor of Arts degree and a combined major of political science, economics, German, and French. Then he attended the University of Virginia Law School, And he graduated with a law degree in 1971 and was subsequently admitted to the Virginia Bar. For the next three years, he served as a judge advocate general in the United States Navy at Long Beach Naval Station. Now, in 1975, he was admitted to the bar in New Mexico and worked as an assistant attorney general and counsel to the State Department of Corrections. He served in this capacity until 1980, when he became a judge for the first district court in Santa Fe. He served as a judge for three years, and then in 1983 became the director of the New Mexico Department of Corrections. And we heard in the trailer there, Captain, what state the they were in as far as the Department of Correction goes for New Mexico State. The, the problems there were bad. That riot that we described probably and most likely was was caused by severe overcrowding within the prison system. That particular prison had almost double the amount of inmates that it was built to house, some of them sleeping without beds. And then we also have brutality from both sides of the cell block door from the inmates and from some of the correction officers as well. In May of 1987, Oregon Governor Neil Goldschmidt hired Michael Frankie to fill the corresponding position in Oregon. Frankie was hired to address problems in the Oregon State's Department of Corrections. The main purpose, however, for his hiring was to oversee the largest prison expansion in Oregon State history. It was necessary to expand due to severe overcrowding in these prisons as well. Now, we already spoke of the checkered history of the Oregon prison system. 
And Michael Frankie was the man tasked with removing the corruption of the Oregon State Department of Corrections. But he took heavy criticism when he first came in by legislatures for the cost of overruns and delays in the state's prison construction program. These same legislators were also growing increasingly frustrated about the rising inmate population. So the Oregon system was experiencing severe overcrowding with up to 5,000 inmates crammed into prisons originally designed for 2,800 people. Still, it's believed by many that he figured out who was doing what and was ready to report it to his superiors. Frankie told his family that he was going to blow the lid off of corruption in the Oregon prison system and implicate several top government officials. Now, this leads us to January 17th, 1989. So we know a little bit about Michael Frankie's background, but what we didn't say is that Michael was a hardworking, dedicated and determined individual. And he was expected that he expected the same out of those who worked for him. Michael was known to work late many, if not most work days. He often worked into the evening on Tuesday, January 17th, 1989, Michael Frankie held a regular meeting. This was with the five division heads and other top staff members on his staff. On this Tuesday, the meeting lasted until 6 p.m. Michael Frankie talked with some personnel after and was seen by several people inside what is the dome building, what is called the dome building. There were several floors of offices in this building, and Michael Frankie's office is on the ground level. Reports from witnesses indicate that Mr. Frankie left the dome building shortly after 6.30 p.m. Other reports indicate that it was closer to 6.45 p.m. But just to be clear, no reports read that Mr. Frankie left his office after 6.45 p.m. Two senior staff leaving the dome building approximately 40 minutes later discovered Michael Frankie's car parked in its designated spot outside the front entryway with the driver's door open. Frankie's white Pontiac Bonneville was one of only a few cars left in the parking lot at the corrections headquarters at this time of night. The two staffers observed no noticeable damage to the vehicle and no obvious signs of forced entry on the vehicle were observed. The staffers closed and locked the car door and returned to the dome building where they made numerous phone calls to other senior staffers to determine Frankie's whereabouts, all to no avail. Security was notified at the nearby communication center, and the staffers left the dome building at approximately 8.05 p.m. Two other senior staffers, Richard Peterson, head of institutions, and David Coley, head of planning and budget, arrived at approximately 8.35 p.m and conducted what they described as a meticulous search of the dome building, but found nothing amiss. There was thought that maybe someone had picked Michael Frankie up, and maybe they had went to dinner. This was discussed by several of the persons looking for him. So the senior staff members went home for the night after they failed to locate Mr. Frankie, and assumed that he was at a private dinner engagement. Police were not notified at this time. Around 12.30 a.m., January 18th, 
the night watchman on duty, Stephen Rubino, was told to be especially observant as he made his rounds of the dome building. Now, as he came to a dimly lit porch at the side of the building, Rubino spotted a large man sprawled on the porch. He was surrounded by bloodstains, and a panel of glass at the porch doorway was smashed. The night watchman had discovered Michael Frankie's body. Police secured the area. The inspectors quickly noticed some of Michael Frankie's belongings may be missing. This was his briefcase. There was also broken glass on and near his body. Now, it's believed that Michael Frankie, as he was being murdered, he had tried to unlock the door to get back into the DOC office, the Department of Corrections office, but could not unlock the doors. And in his final moments of life, Frankie broke a glass panel from the door, attempting to get inside or, at the very least, call for help. Some have said that all of Frankie's documents from his year-long investigation were later shredded at the Department of Corrections within hours of his body being found. This is according to, quote, inside sources. Now, these inside sources are not listed, just to be clear here. The newspapers that very same day covered the story. The information that they released was this. Michael Frankie was found stabbed to death just outside the office building in which he worked. He died of a stab wound to the heart with massive bleeding. The medical examiner said it was, quote, a definite homicide, but there were no suspects. So now we have a judge that was brought in to clean up this prison system and he's murdered. Yeah, and later the Michael Frankie murder investigation was described as the largest of its kind in Oregon history at that time. The number of investigators fluctuated between 6 and 30 full-time investigators. Mm. The media coverage was intense, to say the least. And then Governor Neil Goldschmidt, he was really, according to the papers, putting the police department under intense pressure to make an arrest and bring closure to the case. Of course, given the nature of Frankie's work, the possibility that the murder was a hit was immediately considered. Right. Despite interviews with thousands of people, including several convicts, and a reward fund exceeding $20,000, the investigators assigned to the case were not catching any big breaks early on in the investigation. What we do know was this. Due to eyewitness accounts, the police were convinced that the killer was a dark-haired man with a light-colored coat who was seen running from the scene. But that man's identity was unknown. There were some problems with the investigation. One being that the time of death was not known. So the window for the time of death is simply 6.30 p.m., which is approximately the last time that Mr. Frankie was seen. Right. And just after 12.30 a.m. when his body was found. We he, well, he's found by security, right? Correct. So do they not have any security cameras in this facility? They did not. And the thing here is, Captain, we can't even at the very least narrow that down any because when his body was found, the mm -hmm. body temperature was never taken nor recorded. I'm sorry, right. which would have shortened that window for us. So all we can say is that sometime between the last time he was seen alive and the time that he was found dead near this door, that's when he was killed. Another question. 
keypad entries or is it strictly just it's it's a key it's 1989 and Mm -hmm. this so we need to be clear here this this is a little bit difficult you say well if there were several people looking for this individual why was he not located Mm -hmm. well there's a couple problems with this okay so it's january one is a problem because by the time he would have left work that day it was already dark so they're at a disadvantage looking for someone especially outside Um, where he would later be found. And this, the door that he died in front of was, it was like a side door. And I believe it was on the second floor. So let's say he was attacked. His car door was found open. So there's some thought that he, he was attacked at that car and then managed to try to seek help. And he made it to that door before he expired. So, he said the door that he was found on was the second floor. Yes. So I don't know if this would have been the most, the, the nearest door for him. I'm guessing that's where he would go to. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's say it's the nearest door. He would have had to run from his vehicle after being attacked and then go up the stairs and try to get into that door. And then unfortunately he passed away there before help could arrive or the attack continued that the, the attacker followed him up there and, and, and killed him in front of the door. So no keypads and no security video footage of this. Correct. And you bringing up the keypad is interesting because there was at least I, off the top of my head, captain, I think only mm-hmm. one article that I found regarding the case and the crime scene there was an article that That's stated any articles on, uh, on the case. No, I meant stating the following, mm-hmm. um, that the locks to the doors were changed that day. Now, mm. I don't know that I believe that I don't, I, I have no reason to discredit it. I have no proof that it didn't happen that day. But what I will say is this there, and it, this will be obvious by the end of this episode. There's a lot of questions around this murder and there's a lot of thoughts about who committed this crime. And I think that the idea of the locks being changed that day adds to the mystique of it or to the, the confusion of the whole crime scene. The problem I have with that statement though, captain is that Michael Frankie was the boss. He was the, he was the, the number one dude in this building. There were, as I said, there were several floors of offices inside this building of the Oregon department of corrections building. Right. He was the man in there. If the door locks were changed that day, if there's one person that you make sure has that key, when the doors are changed, when the locks are changed, it's the boss. It's that guy. It's that guy. Yeah. And the other thing too, to, to paint the picture of the scene or to get an idea of what, when we try to think of what could have happened to this man, Bob Ross. Please keep in mind, Michael Frankie. Remember, we said he went he he went to college on a football scholarship. Mm-hmm. This was not a tiny man. This well, was this dude was six foot three, well, two hundred and twenty five pounds. And he wasn't the kicker. I have no idea what position he played. I'm just saying he could have went to, <laughs> played football and he could have been the kicker. Well, he could have been, but changes things. A little bit, but what we we know he was not small. He was six foot three, two hundred and twenty five to two hundred and thirty pounds. Yeah, this is a big guy. Get right back to this after this quick beer break.
The evidence keeps pouring in. At this point, the facts are undeniable. It's an open and shut case. Monopoly Go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game. Everyone is still talking about Monopoly Go for a good reason. It is an absolute hit. Millions of people pass Go every day because this game is always bringing something new to the table. Like countless crazy tournaments, you can join with your friends as partners or teams. Or timed events, offering bonuses like massive multipliers or rent frenzies to help you get huge rewards. And there's so many rewards to discover. Rare stickers you can trade with friends to complete albums. Delightful emojis to taunt people with when you raid their riches. Unique playing pieces and so much more. The verdict is in. With Monopoly Go, there's something new to discover every time you play. So don't miss out. Go download it now free on the App Store and Google Play. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, I highly recommend that you give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com garage today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash garage. This show is proudly sponsored by BetterHelp. Check out BetterHelp.com slash garage today. Do you want to set your child up for success? Of course you do. That's why you need to check out IXL Learning today. IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids covering math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed to help them really understand and master topics in a fun way. It's powered by advanced algorithms. IXL gives the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. There's one site for all kids in your home pre-K to 12th grade. Kids could use it at home on their computer or on an app on your phone or a tablet. No more grading those worksheets. IXL grades everything for you. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. I love recommending IXL learning. Kids can learn at home or on the go. And all my friends and family that are using it absolutely love it because it's so easy to set up and so easy to use. And even the kids that I've recommended it to their parents have told me, hey, Captain, Thank you. I was having problems in math and my parents couldn't help me, but IXL could. Do you want to get your kids back on track or do you just want to get your kids ahead? Do so with IXL Learning. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And True Crime Garage listeners get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com slash garage. Visit IXL.com slash garage to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Check out IXL.com slash garage today. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. 
Fuel up for them with Factor's no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. Crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious, from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. I am new to Factor, and I have been loving every minute of it. I have a problem, and it's called lunch. Some days I need a pack of lunch, and some days I work from home. Whether I'm at home or whether I'm on the go, Factor is fueling my lunch from now on. Head to factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 and use code truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next month. That's code truecrimegarage50 at factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. All right, cheers, me mateys. Cheers, Captain. We have a big break in the case Mm. because on April 8th, 1990, so this is nearly 15 months after Frankie's death, Mm -hmm. the police arrested Frank Gable, who was at the time 30 years old. He's arrested for the murder of Michael Frankie. So who is he? Uh, Well, so Frank Gable... His name did not surface as a suspect, I guess, until about eight months after the crime when the murder investigation was at what they were calling at the time a standstill. Two people initially pointed the finger at Gable. One was Michael Kearns. The other tipster was Janine Vera Gable, Frank Gable's wife. So the police at this time believed that Michael Frankie was murdered in a an attempted robbery the police interrogated known drug dealers and street criminals looking to figure out if somebody had heard something you know they want to find out the word on the streets right one of them claimed that he witnessed the murder and then identified the killer as a drug dealer named frank gable according to this witness gable was in the act of breaking into michael's car michael frankie's car when michael came out of the office building around 7 p.m Gable then stabbed Frankie, very badly wounding him. It is believed at this time that Gable stole Michael Frankie's briefcase and fled the scene. Michael Frankie then staggered up a set of stairs to a side entrance to the building, attempting to get in, could not, and then broke the glass pane on the door in a desperate, desperate attempt to get back into his office. Now, after getting this tip that led police to drug dealer Frank Gable, Frank was already in jail for beating his wife when he was arraigned for killing Oregon prison director, Michael Frankie. 
The okay. charges? Go ahead. So Frankie's attacked January of 89. When is this suspect arrested for beating his wife? Uh, that I don't know. And I'm going to be honest with you, Captain. I don't know a ton about this Frank Gable. Um, it, it wasn't until April of 1990 that he is charged with Frankie's murder, but we do know that he became on, he got onto police radar about eight months after the murder. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that means he was locked up around that same time. One of my thoughts is that it could very well be the case because one of the witnesses is his wife who he has already been charged with, uh, assaulting. And he's in jail for that assault. Right. So one good thing is, hey, we got a suspect that we really like, and he's not going to be hard to find because we know where he is. He's sitting in a jail somewhere. But with his wife being one of the supposed eyewitnesses or people willing to point the finger at this Frank Gable, I can't believe that if that was going on in their relationship, that she was going to tell the police about it before he's arrested for hitting her. Now the charges for Frank Gable would be six counts of aggravated murder and one count of intentional murder for allegedly fatally stabbing Michael Frankie. Aggravated murder is a capital crime in Oregon and the prosecutors said they will seek the death penalty if Gable is convicted. Now investigators never found a weapon or other physical evidence tying Gable to the crime and Gable. Well, he never confessed to the crime either. In fact, in a jailhouse interview after his court appearance, Gable said he was innocent saying, quote, don't let me get railroaded. He told K O I N television. I just asked that they not stop looking. There's a killer out there somewhere. The indictment offers a series of possible motives for the murder including that Gable killed Frankie during a theft or robbery or that the slaying was related to Frankie's work as a prison's chief. The trial at trial, the prosecutor said that Frankie caught Gable breaking into his car and in a panic, Gable stabbed him. Now, again, no physical evidence was produced even at trial. However, the prosecution was allowed to introduce as evidence, a knife that was purchased by investigators, which matched Frankie's wounds. Gable's ex-wife testified that she had gave Gable a similar knife at some point in their relationship. (laughs) (laughs) Right. That seems like there's some holes, no pun intended, in this. Uh, Is that the worst evidence you've ever heard? Yeah, I mean, again have some proof, have some evidence. I mean, if she had a receipt of a knife that she bought prior, then okay. But, right. but we don't. So, we're, and, and how many stab wounds do we have? His autopsy is difficult. So the way that this, the way that it reads is that he was stabbed directly in the heart. The problem with what was released to the public is that we don't know if that stab came from the back or the front. Right. There was not a ton of information released publicly regarding his autopsy. They do state that there were some defensive wounds on the victim. There was also some sign of blunt force trauma. However, this sounds terrible. Um, the blunt force trauma, they don't believe was part of the attack. They actually believe that his, his body 
uh, that blunt force trauma to the body occurred when he, he was most likely slumped up against the door and the wall in the corner as he was trying to get into that door, that office door to, to get help. Right. And then at some point he fell onto the concrete and they believe that that blunt force trauma to the body occurred at that time and not during the course of the attack. So I'm going to ask an obvious question. I'm hoping for an obvious answer. <laughs> okay. You put me on the spot, Cam. So he, he's breaking into a car. He's breaking into the vehicle. That's what they think happened. That's what the prosecution is stating. So we have fingerprints. Um, no, we don't. Mm. And again, remember the troubling thing here too, is we have the eyewitnesses, the, the people that closed the car door that found the car door open, Frankie's car door open. They stated that they didn't see any damage to the car, any sign of a scuffle, any obvious signs that, that somebody broke into the vehicle. Right. You know, it almost looks like to me with given that description, it more likely sounds to me that Frankie opened up his own car door and then was attacked and the car door just happened to be left open possibly or the way that the prosecution paints the picture is that Frank Gables in mid break in and the, I would have to guess Frank Gables already got the door open by the time that Frankie discovers him and says, Hey buddy, what are you doing with my car? Yeah, what you are know, you doing? Now you got a six yeah. foot three large man getting ready to come down upon you for breaking into his car. Yeah, breathe heavy into your ear. Well, and I, I think we don't well, let's well, go ahead. But but Frank Gable could have just been checking cars to see if they're unlocked. And then he goes, Oh, this car's unlocked. I open up the door. Right when I open up the door, Frankie sees Sees me. me. Yeah. So that could have happened too. That's a possibility. But again, Guess whose hands on that door? Mm-hmm. Unless you're telling me that that he was wearing gloves or whatever. The the individual that was spotted is believed to have been wearing gloves. Mm. That that there was a man. Remember, we have the eyewitness account of a dark haired man in a light colored coat f- running from the scene. The problem with that is this person is spotted running from the area of the vehicle, not necessarily running from a murder scene. You know, it's not like anybody says, I saw a murder or a man attacked. And then this description of this guy ran away from the area. Right. No, there's just a dude that's spotted in the area. Now, that guy from every from every statement I could find sounds like the guy was wearing gloves. So, well, and it could just be a guy that, you know, randomly was leaving work and decided, you know what? I really need to get in better shape. I'm going to start right now running well and look it's january don't people wear gloves in january Mm -hmm. i mean i do (laughs) get with it people put on some gloves hey don't you wear don't you wear gloves i also wear socks in january too yeah hey at the trial the state produced several witnesses this is going to be the troubling thing for mr frank gable these witnesses all of whom were criminal associates of gable and claim that Gable confessed the crime to them after the fact. The testimonies were from the following. First, we have a woman named Jody Swearingen. She's a local teen runaway who testified before a grand jury that she had witnessed the murder. Police reports indicate that she had identified Frank Gable as the perpetrator of that murder. Then we have Cappy, a.k.a. Shorty Harden. Cappy Shorty. If your first name is Cappy, do you need a nickname? 
Unless you're nah. incredibly short, then he's then he's Mario. shorty. What if he's like three foot seven? Then you're shorty. Yeah. He testified at trial that he was parked near the dome building with the young woman we just discussed, Jody Swearingen. When he Wait, saw shorty was yeah, he saw Frank Gable, according to Cappy or Shorty, whatever you want to call him. He saw Frank Gable stab Michael Frankie. Mm-hmm. Then we have Mike Kearns. We also have Dan Walsh and Kevin Walker. All three separately testified that Gable confessed to them that he had killed Frankie. So okay, these are okay. so. Why are these guys in the area? Why is this guy parked? Um, I don't know if they were parked in the car and fooling around or if they were leaving the area. So this building is actually near um, a very large hospital. Uh-huh. Um, so almost across the street from the parking lot where we believe Michael Frankie was attacked would be a very large parking lot um, for a state hospital. So they very likely could have been in the state hospital parking lot. Right, but I, I want to know why they were there. It seems to me that they're just finding people that know Frank Gable and just going, "Hey, just say you're there." Oh no, I apologize. I think I, I think the way that I describe that is weird. I don't believe that Jody Swearingen and this Shorty Harden actually knew who Frank Gable was. Okay, um, they were able to say, "Hey, the person we saw attack Michael Frankie was this man." They were able uh-huh. to identify him. The people that knew Frank Gable were that Michael Cairns. Dan Walsh, Kevin Walker. These were known associates of Gables who at one point he confessed, according to them, that he had killed Michael Frankie. Then we have Janine Vera. Remember the married to Gable at the time of Frankie's murder. Right. She testified that Gable was not home on the night of the murder and that she didn't know where he was. She also testified that Gable said at some point, quote, I stuck the guy. She says, what guy? He says, quote, the guy at the hospital, Gable answered. Now, that's an interesting statement here, Captain, because one thing I had wondered about when the prosecution gave their theory of the events and of the murder and how it occurred and the motive was that this guy's breaking into a car. Well, if I'm a criminal, if I'm a thief, you probably are. I'm not choosing a vehicle that's in the parking lot of the department of corrections, the head, the, you know, the headquarters for the department of corrections, unless you don't know, unless you think it's a hospital. Right. And that's, what's interesting about what she says when she testifies that Gable referred to him as the guy at the hospital. The other thing that's interesting there too, is that that also implies that Frank Gable did not know the man that he attacked. He didn't know him by name. Mm hmm. Now, the verdict, that little bit of evidence, those people testifying, that's all the evidence they had. All hearsay, all circumstantial. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we had last week's case of Scott Peterson where people got a little upset and said, how can you convict on circumstantial evidence? Uh, There was what I would refer to as a mountain of circumstantial evidence against Scott Peterson. Against Frank Gable here, however, that's it. That's a molehill of circumstantial evidence. Well, I still like the way that Nancy Grace talks about it is the idea that you go into work and it's sunny and it's beautiful out. Then you go out for lunch and there's puddles everywhere Mm -hmm. and your car is wet. And there's all this circumstantial evidence that lets you know that it probably rained. Right. And, And so that's how you get to that conclusion. 
Yeah, there, there's not a mountain of evidence here. The difficult things, one is your your two eyewitnesses are criminals. Then these so-called associates that you confess to. Well, it's believed, and I'm going to say allegedly because I can't say um, that I have hardcore evidence of this mm-hmm. or saw lots of reports stating the same, but allegedly I would guess five out of the six people that testified that he was guilty or six out of six would have been probably drug users at mm-hmm. the time. Um, and I can say that because look, Frank Gable was a, he was a known drug dealer. Right. And so his associates are either going to be other dealers or users, most likely. Okay. And they've also been referred to publicly in newspaper articles as just that, as drug users. As far as Jody Swearingen and Cappy Harden go, um, aka Shorty, I believe similar that they were uh, drug users at the time. Again, I don't think they had any knowledge of Frank Gable prior to seeing the person that they described as Frank Gable stabbing Michael Frankie. So what's interesting is with Frank Gable, as you wonder, why would he break into somebody's car? I mean, if he's a drug dealer, then why, why are you breaking into somebody's car? That's, that's kind of a lower level crime. So you're probably making money off the drugs. Why would you break into a car? But if the car is, you think is at a hospital or are you breaking into it because you think this person is a doctor and there's something that you can get out of this. You could get some prescription pills or, or something like that. Mm-hmm. Well, that's an interesting thing that you bring up here. And one thought is that, okay, so Frank Gable was considered quote unquote, a career criminal by this point in his life. This is somebody that has been, had trouble with the law. It wasn't his first run in with the law. He was a known drug dealer. He was a guy that was going to make his living off of committing crimes. Can you imagine that, though? I mean, you and I have both been in positions where we're at a job that we're not we're not in love with. Mm-hmm. But it pays okay, and the benefits are all right. So it starts becoming, hey, maybe I can turn this into a career. Can you imagine the guy that's selling a little bit of dope here, a little bit of dope there, breaking into cars? Starts thinking, I don't, I don't have many options. I sh- this is going to be my career. Well, the other thing, though, too, is I don't know that it's about options. I think a lot of times with these individuals, it's about they don't give a shit about two weeks from now, two months from now, two years from now. That's right. They're living in the moment, and it's how can I get some money for today, maybe tonight, maybe tomorrow is the furthest they can think ahead. So let's talk about the car, though, Captain. So. Neither Frankie's car phone nor his stereo were tampered with. We do know that from the police reports. Yeah, the car phone. Yeah. Mm. Interesting. Well, remember back then, I'm guessing it's one of those Motorola deals that has like the, it has a little station with it. It looks almost like a tiny briefcase. Yeah. And it, and some people would keep it in their glove box or kind of there in the center between the two front seats. So it'd be very obvious. Now, what makes that interesting though, too, is if I am a criminal looking for something expensive and I see that sitting on the passenger seat or in the front portion of the vehicle, I'm going to go, man, I'd like to steal that car phone. Right? So, well, uh, the question here is now, is this car owned by Frankie or is this given to him by the state? I believe that he owns 
the vehicle. Mm-hmm. And I, the only thing I have to go off of is that it's referred to as Frankie's car phone and his stereo were not tampered with. Well, because sometimes, I mean, head, heads of detectives will get a detective vehicle, for example, and they might have the radio in there, but also have uh, emergency cell phone mm-hmm. service. So that's kind of why I was wondering. And then that also makes me wonder if it was owned by the state, then how many people have access to to keys? The other thing that we should call into question is the body. So Michael Frankie's watch, wallet, and cash were still on him when he was found after he, he was dead. What kind of watch was it? How how would I know what kind of... <laughs> I don't know what kind of watch it is. Um, and rego- well, I think if you're trying to... If you're the defense, for example, right? Mm-hmm. And you say, "Hey, he's he's wearing a he's wearing a baller watch. He's wearing a Timex. He's wearing a Rolex. Is Timex a baller? No, Timex no, is not, not a, a baller watch. That's, that's, what, that's <laughs> what makes it a joke. Those are the people that are balling in uh, fifth grade, right? But what I'm saying is, I, I that does make a difference. And you'd think that the defense would have brought this up to say, "Hey, if if he was breaking into the car because he wanted." to get money or whatever he was looking for, then wouldn't he take this watch? I mean, if it's a, if it's a crap watch, you're not going to mm-hmm. take it. I mean, it might've been a little calculator watch. We don't know because it's not reported. But again, these items would suggest that the money was not the priority of the killer is what a lot of people would point out. <laughs> again, my problem with Frank, with Frank Gable's motive is if he is a drug dealer, one, why would you be bro- breaking into cars? That seems like a, a downward move in your career. You're selling drugs. You're making money. You're balling out of control. You're wearing Timex. You got five Timex on your left arm. So why are you breaking into the car? But again, he thought it was the uh, the hospital. So you're breaking into a car because you think it's a doctor's car. So you're trying to break in to get drugs or or a prescription pad or whatever it is. Possibly, possibly. I don't know that I would say that Frank Gable was above breaking into cars. Um, again, I believe this is an individual that's a career criminal. Uh, he's any, he's a, those types of individuals look for opportunity. And when opportunity presents itself, they seize the moment and steal whatever it is that they can. Captain, they did not need Nancy Grace sitting on the sidelines cheerleading for the prosecution here because the verdict that would come down. Gable was found guilty and received life in prison with no chance of parole. All right. So an open and shut case, right? Yep. Easy. (laughs) Easy. I'll see you next week. Done. One parter. Great one parter. (laughs) Well, not so fast as Mm -hmm. the there are major doubts in this case. There were TV and newspapers that came forward in February of 1991. Um, And this started prior to Gable's conviction. The Michael Frankie story was featured on an episode of the TV program, Unsolved Mysteries. Mm. The killing sparked widespread speculation that Frankie was murdered because he was about to expose corruption in his department. One of Frankie's brothers. He was also hired for though. Yes, it's believed that he was hired for, that was part of the reason that he was hired. Mm-hmm. One of Frankie's brothers said that the prison's uh, chief told him shortly before his death that he had discovered organized crime elements in the prison's system. 
The case also became somewhat of a battleground between the three leading Portland newspapers, a leading advocate for the wrongful conviction slash conspiracy theory was local journalist, Phil Stanford. Stanford wrote extensively on the case and wrote a screenplay for a film based on the Frankie murder called without evidence. This was released in 1995 featuring Angelina Jolie and one of her first major roles. Now she played the person that we already mentioned, Jody Swearingen. Then even after the conviction person's, close to the case started calling into question many interesting aspects of the case and the murder scene. We already discussed the car. We already discussed the body, but one thing that they would keep going back to is the timing of the murder because we have Frankie's brother who says that shortly before his murder, he told him he was going after an organized criminal element within the prison system. Frankie's employees told police he had received threats shortly before he was murdered and on several occasions sent security guards to his home. Now we have Chuck Sides, a former state lawmaker who played basketball with Michael Frankie that later said that shortly before Frankie's murder, that Frankie started carrying a pistol in his gym bag for self-defense because he was taking steps to disrupt drug trafficking inside the prisons. Mm -hmm. That's quite interesting, Captain, for several reasons. Because we have the prosecution that state that the main motive for the murder of Michael Frankie was that he disrupted a car thief. Right. And it was killed as a reactionary thing during the course of that robbery. Mm -hmm. Right. And here we have... We have a lawmaker. We have people that he worked with that are saying that there obviously was something in Michael Frankie's life that he believed that he was in danger. He's sending police officers to his home from time to time. He's actively carrying a gun in his gym bag. Right. These would point to signs that this man believed that he was going to be part of a premeditated attack on his life. And not necessarily a situation where he surprises a car thief. Yeah, so then the question becomes, did he just interrupt a a simple car break-in? Or was his investigation such on the right track that it was leading him down the wrong path with the wrong people? Make sure you follow us on all social media platforms at True Crime Garage. Make sure you share and tell a friend, you crazy bastards. And drop everything you're doing. Go to iTunes and tell them how much you love us. Big five stars, five out of five stars. Until tomorrow, everybody, be good, be kind, and don't litter. On 
this episode of Plant Killers, we'll explore one nation's most notorious fruit and vegetable killer, bad dirt. What makes bad dirt so bad? The answer, the ingredients. But fear not, true crime enthusiasts. This story has a happy ending. New miracle Grow organic raised bed in garden soil. It's made with quality organic ingredients from upcycled green waste like compost and aged bark. Unlike the other guys who can't say the same. Looks like bad dirt's murdering days are over. Thanks to miracle Grow. Join us next time on Plant Killers.